He swings, hits it high and deep and gone. Still going back. Out of here. Welcome to the big leagues. Deep to center field. And it is gone. Wow, his first big league swing is going to be a grand slam home run. Swing and drive. Welcome back to The Call-Up, your go-to podcast on the future stars of Major League Baseball. I'm your host, Arm Layton, and in today's episode, we're going to discuss some of the Arizona Fall League prospects who maybe improve their stock in their 20 to 25 games out there. It's worth noting that you really shouldn't change your perspective on a player based on their AFL performance, and that's something I'm going to get into a little bit as we lead into the individual players I want to break down. But there's a reason why the Arizona Fall League exists. And it's not just to get more reps. It's also to get a little bit more of an idea of what you have in some of these players who maybe didn't play at the same level of competition as they're going to see out there. There's some prospects that predominantly played at the lower levels and then saw a lot more challenging competition in this AFL. There might be others that played I would say probably tougher competition, but you wanted to see how they'd perform defensively out there. And it really doesn't matter who's playing on the other end of things because they're professional hitters who are going to hit the ball hard at them. Pitchers, there's a lot of things that you could be looking at with them in a vacuum as well. So it's not really about the numbers per se, though most of these guys are going to be players who put up really good numbers. It's more of where were they at going into this AFL stint and did they answer any questions that may have been had around them or did they continue to solidify uh, the narrative that was building for them at the end of the season, which I think is the case for several players as well, like a Jacob Marcy, let's say. So while none of the players that I'm going to talk about are going to see a future value shift from our perspective at Just Baseball or really are going to jump up any major prospect rankings, let's say, I would say that many of these players, or if not all of them that we're going to discuss here, have either placed themselves more solidly on my radar based on what I saw in the AFL, and I think also have just effectively done what their teams were hoping to see from them in their time in Arizona. And I'll kind of break that down individually, case by case, and explain it a little bit more because it is, again, very case by case. And do I know everything that teams wanted to see out of these players? No, but you kind of know what some of the questions are around certain players. You you know what teams generally look for from their arms that they send out there. And most simply, if you see a tangible adjustment or something that has improved in stuff or whether it is exit velocities that we hadn't previously seen, little things that you can look at and say, almost similar to the way you look at a spring training and say, okay, I don't have a totally different perspective on this player, but he has my attention and I want to see if he can build on this after what we were able to see in a somewhat smaller sample size. Again, it's very case by case. So we're going to be talking about some players who could potentially break camp and other players who were pitching an indie ball maybe six, eight months ago and now have really solidified themselves as players who belong in affiliated ball. As I said, it's a wide spectrum here, but a really fun conversation. So I'll start with some of the bigger names on the offensive side, and then we'll wrap up with some of the lesser known names in the position player ranks and then pitchers as well. One last note on this, 
there are some players that really performed well out there that I'm not going to discuss in this episode because they simply did something close to or exactly what I would have expected them to do and what maybe most of the industry would have expected them to do, right? So like a Sterling Thompson, for example, with the Rockies. Yes, he was awesome out there, but he was awesome most of the year and I expect him to be able to put up those numbers against that competition. It was more about just reinforcing what he had already done during the season and continue to build those reps and see what he could do a little bit on the defensive side. But again, those those questions weren't really there predominantly. And we're going to talk about Thompson very soon, by the way, that Rockies top prospect list is coming out soon. But Chase DeLotter, for example, as well with the Guardians, that guy hit 299 out there with a 914 OPS, pretty much exactly what I was expecting to see from him. He was somebody that got a late start, needed to just get more reps, and that's why he's out there. What more do you really need to see from a DeLotter? At this point, the only thing that's going to change his stock for me is big-time production at the upper levels and continuing to tap into that power in games. One last example, or two more examples of that, excuse me, would be someone like a Kyle Manzardo. Really good out there. 905 OPS, but that doesn't change anything. Jackson Job, similar as well with the Tigers. Right-handed pitcher was so good when he was healthy and on the field this year and then was continuously good in the AFL. Even if we're talking about relatively marginal changes in perceived stock with the names that we're about to dive into, those aforementioned names really almost are unchanged at all with what they were able to do out there because that was what we were expecting and they were there for the reps. Jumping right into Jacob Marcy, he pretty much did everything he possibly could to get himself on track for an opportunity to break camp. And it's it's a stretch for him to be able to break camp with the Padres this coming season. But I don't think it's crazy because this is a team that's clearly trying to shed some payroll and they're going to need to do that in several different ways. And one of them is going to presumably be trading Juan Soto, which all of the insiders seem to be diving into. That already opens up one outfield spot. Another way, I think, is by trading Trent Grisham, who is owed a decent amount of money through one of his latter years of arbitration now. And Marcy, of course, would be at the league minimum. And when you look at what you've been getting from a Trent Grisham over the last few years, there's reasonable, I think it's reasonable to say that Marcy can provide something similar to that, if not better. And I don't take veterans for granted, and it's very hard to get a rookie to plug in and give you a league average offense. But I think with what Marcy did out there, both from just a statistical standpoint, and then also the intangibles and just the overall comfort some specific at-bats I saw against the big league arms that he did get to face, and and also just the instincts for the game overall and the defense and center. I know the Padres scouts and front office members that were out there catching the games were were taking note of that. I know they were definitely impressed by that. And also, when you play 24 games and hit 391, 508, 707, that's a 1215 OPS yeah, you're, you're going to be turning some heads. He hit 12 doubles in those 24 games, five homers, a triple, stole 16 bags on 19 tries, and the defense, again, really solid out there. What maybe stood out as much as anything and is part of the reason why I think he is worth a look early in the season for the Padres and is really solidifying that, that stock up arrow, even if it's the AFL version of it, which is a marginal stock up, is the fact that his command of the strike zone was so impressive as well. The guy walked 21 times in 24 games, and that really bodes well for his ability to make the leap to the big leagues if they want to be aggressive with him, which we know the Padres like to be aggressive with their prospects, and this is 
somewhat that perfect candidate. So when you look at what the Padres were hoping to see from Marcy out here, I think it was, hey, make us feel like we're not absolutely nuts to go into spring training with you potentially having a chance to win a job out there in the outfield for the Padres, depending on what moves they make over the next couple months. That is something that I think is really important here. And and he did that in, in just about every way possible, being able to prove that he can play all three outfield spots, being able to prove that he can survive the maybe slow offensive start with the ability to walk with the speed and, and all of the intangibles. So Marcy really giving himself a chance to either break in early in the season or you never know, potentially even have a crack to break camp with a strong spring training. And I look at it as in the Arizona Fall League for guys like him, this is somewhat of a compliment to spring training because yes, guys go play in the winter league and put up numbers there and that can help too. But this is at the facilities. This is where there's a lot of scouts and and team members and front office members that can really look up close and personal and feel like they've got a little bit more of a sample size when you go into spring training, which is also a small sample size. Two small sample sizes is better than one and can combine to a relatively decent one. So Marcy, somebody that I think really helped expedite his timeline for next year. Next up is another guy we've talked a little bit about already. It's James Triantos of the Chicago Cubs, and he's a hit tool over everything guy, somewhat of a candidate that you expect to succeed out there. But when you do what Triantos did out there, it's really hard to not be fired up and feel as though he may have found something a bit out there. Triantos has posted elite contact rates, talked about him a couple episodes ago when we did an AFL check-in, but he was hitting the ball as hard as we've seen him hit it. Yes, the ball carries out there, and that helped him hit the three home runs and really slug more than we've ever seen him slug. He slugged 679, but he hit 417 with a 495 on base percentage there in those 22 games. Five triples, three homers, three doubles. I still have my questions about the defense, but what was clear for me when I was able to see him out there is that he's athletic. He runs pretty well, and he was able to snag nine bags on 10 tries, but he also is someone that's athletic in the batter's box. His Ability to be malleable and adjust to tough pitches and still get the bat on ball when he's fooled and just having those B swings that are still capable of shooting a ball into the gap. It was really impressive and something that he's had. So does that change the stock? Maybe not as much, but what I think was a mover for me, or at least something that stood out to me was he was hitting the ball harder. He was more in rhythm than I had seen him at any point last year. And I think just having that hands-on opportunity, the Cubs like to do this a lot with some of their younger and more notable prospects. Owen Casey, same thing last year where they train, they are playing in the Arizona Fall League, and they really don't leave Arizona. They continue to train out there and then stay there for spring training and keep going from there. And I think Triantos is someone that really just reaped the rewards of being around the big league facility and just continuing to build on what was a solid season, but left me kind of wondering what's there. Where is he going to play long term? I still don't know, but I saw enough athleticism to hope that, hey, maybe that guy can fill in and left. Maybe he can at least progress enough to be a decent second baseman. Maybe that center field pipe dream isn't too insane as he gets more reps. I saw more athleticism than I think maybe some give him credit for. And most importantly, he hit the ball harder than he's really hit it all year long. More EVs over 105 than he had really had 
all season long. And that stands out because we're talking about a small sample size, sure. But if you're hitting the ball harder in 22 games, or at least posting more exit velocities over 104, 105 in 22 games than you did in the preceding 100 games, clearly you're tapping into some more power. And that's something that is worth noting. Trianto still heading to 2024 with some good momentum and I think is somebody that should be poised to climb the minor leagues relatively quickly. He also had only played 83 games this past season, so a candidate to just get those additional reps. But over the course of the regular season, slug just 391. I know that it is a more hitter-friendly environment and in terms of being able to have the ball carry and see it fly a bit more. But when you hit four home runs in 83 games and then you hit three home runs in 22 games, that stands out to me. That's always going to be worth noting, and the EVs back it up too. Triantos, the big questions of defense, still wondering. But as I said, there's more athleticism than maybe I had thought going in, and that is something that bodes well for him to be able to find a defensive home long term. Next up is a guy that just simply wasn't on my radar before the AFL and probably wasn't on many radars before the AFL, and that's Liam Hicks of the Texas Rangers. Briefly touched on him in the previous AFL episode just because of how ridiculously uh, efficient and consistent he was in the batter's box, but it's impossible to say that Liam Hicks did not see his stock rise, at least in some way given what he was able to do this year in the Arizona Fall League. In 18 games, this guy compiled 31 hits. There's not much power there. Uh, that's that's definitely uh, that's definitely going to be something that holds him back a bit, and he didn't hit any home runs out there, hit five doubles. But when you hit 449, 553, 522, that's a 1,075 OPS. That's going to stand out because Hicks was someone that was probably not far off from the org guy label. Uh, if you're probably outside of the Texas Rangers organization especially and and looking inside at it. But he did have a decent season overall as a catcher in high A and double A during the regular season where in 92 games he produced a 787 OPS. But I think in this stint in the AFL, he just continued to hammer home the fact that he is a very, very, very good bat-to-ball guy. And I still need to see more with the defense. We're going to have to just kind of wait and see how that continues to to develop. And he, for the most part, was pretty much just exclusively catching. He saw a little bit of action at first base and then the DH role. This was an opportunity for him to continue to develop defensively. And I thought he showed some good things receiving-wise. Regardless, there was at least enough here where this guy enters the AFL as someone that pretty much no one's circling on on the lineup card with all due respect, but by the end of the AFL, you're like, I want to see how many more hits Liam Hicks can really compile. And when you walk twice as much as you strike out, that's 16 walks, eight strikeouts in those 18 games. Again, you've got my attention. I don't know what the long-term outlook is for Hicks, but I can just tell you that I'm paying attention to his name now. And this is a dude that was a ninth round pick out of Arkansas State and also somebody that moved around the diamond at Arkansas State. He wasn't always just a catcher. He played a little second, played a little first. So maybe the Rangers are hoping that they can continue to develop him as a catcher. He was able to do that a little bit out there, but he's proving that the bat is at least worth monitoring with well above average, basically plus contact rates. And you saw the the results of plus contact rates in that AFL this past year. That's a, that's a 450 batting average. So Hicks, 
I don't know where the stock really is. I don't know if he's a top 30 prospect in that system. I think you could make the case that he is with some of the things that he showed last year and then now complementing it with the AFL. But at the same time, regardless, he's on more radars than he was before the AFL. So count that as a stock upward. Next up is a guy who turned enough heads that he actually got moved ahead of the 40-man deadline, and that's Oliver Dunn, who is now a part of the Milwaukee Brewers organization. Dunn was previously with the Phillies and before that with the Yankees, so he's bounced around a little bit. But the second baseman, third baseman, I think he's best at second base, enjoyed a really solid regular season where in double A as a somewhat older prospect at 25 years old, he posted a 902 OPS and launched 21 home runs while flashing some some pretty solid tools. And Dunn was a guy that I was able to get a handful of looks at in my time in Arizona and he stood out to me. He definitely was one of the more experienced guys with in terms of at bats at the upper levels, but with that said, he hits the ball hard, he can run and the defense was fine at, at second base. And the numbers in his 19 AFL games, 343, 455, 616, that's a 1,071 OPS. But the exit velocity stood out. This dude posted a 90th percentile exit velocity over 106 miles an hour uh, over the course of the season. That's including the AFL. And that was enough for the Brewers to say, hey, this is a dude that might be able to fit into our big league roster at some point this coming season. They swap Robert Moore, second round pick of the Brewers, of course, uh, just a year ago, as well as Hendry Mendez, a prospect who some had been excited about, but just really disappointed last year. Those two guys go to Philadelphia in exchange for Oliver Dunn. And I think it, it was a large part because of what Oliver Dunn did in the AFL in front of a lot of Brewers scouts, which was hit the ball really hard, motor, and just play the game at 100 miles per hour, which I love. You got to be that kind of guy if you're that potential bench, infielder, utility type player. And I thought he leaned into that really well. There's no doubt swing and miss in his game. And, and he struck out a fair amount this, this past season during the regular season, right around 26, 27%. But there was enough shown, I believe, in the AFL for evaluators to say, hey, there's a decent chance that this guy could hit enough at the big league level. He cut down on the chase to the point where I mean, he was hardly expanding the zone at all, especially in those 19 games in the AFL, chased it around a 16% clip, was posting actually solid contact rates, at least close to average. And the exit velocities there may have even ticked up. It's a small sample size, but in those 19 games, produced a 90th percentile exit velocity of 108 Basically, Dunn hammered home the things that scouts love about him, which is the, the frenetic way that he plays the game, the way he's able to hit the ball really, really hard despite being more stocky, 5'10", 195, 200 pounds, and finding ways to hedge the concerns, the swing and miss, which he showed some better bat-to-ball skills, and also just hedging that with the lower chase rate. Brewers ID him. They think he's worth a shot, and, and I agree. 26 years old, but fun with some decent upside and some fun tools. I thought that his performance in the AFL was probably a large part of the reason why the Brewers were willing to take a chance on him and go make that trade, which was a pretty early spot to give up on on Robert Moore, who was an early draft pick for them. I, I always thought that one was a bit of a head scratcher in the second round, as well as Mendez, who... Again, had some some buzz around him and disappointed. Clearly, those are two guys that the Brewers felt, hey, I don't know if it's going to happen here with us. 
But at the same time, I also think it's a testament to what Dunn was able to sell them on in his performance out there. Another player who is a diamond in the rough that may have been a really nice snag for the New York Yankees is Caleb Durbin, infielder, mostly played second base out there in the AFL. I'm pretty sure exclusively played second base, actually, as I'm looking at that now. But didn't play a ton of games this year during the regular season. Between high A and double A, just 69 total ball games. 22 in high A, 47 in double A. Had a really, really nice year. And I know that Yankees fans and the Yankees front office and just everybody in general was very excited about what they may have been able to identify here in a trade that was for Lucas Letke uh, to be able to get somebody that was a 14th round pick in Caleb Durbin, who was very overlooked because he's five foot six, 185 pounds. I think that they wanted to see, okay, is this 69 game sample valid, right? Can this be something that we can expect to continue? And there's a few reasons why I think this 23 game sample just helped hammer that home. Well, first of all, that's a third of the games that he played in the regular season, which is crazy. So 23 games, yeah, it's a small sample size for most of the other guys we were talking about, but this guy just had a breakthrough this year. And to do it again now for 23 more games in a totally different environment for a dude that's very hit tool dependent, it's elite contact rates, but he's 5'6". How hard is he going to hit the ball? I'll get to that in a second, actually, because that's another reason why his stock is going up. But generally speaking... No one's counting on 20 home runs for Caleb Durbin. It's going to be, can you hit the ball a ton? Can you get on base at a good clip and play a decent second base? But to build on what he did this year, which was a 304, 395, 427 slash line in those 69 games with a 23-game sample where he hits 353, 456, 588, you got to be pretty excited about that. He walked twice as much as he struck out, and all of a sudden, he starts flashing a little bit more impact. And, and I mean, more than enough impact. There was one specific home run that I saw that was 108 off the bat, went 428 feet. Again, the ball's going to carry out there, but it's not going to come off the bat harder. 108 from Caleb Durbin, who's, yeah, I, I've seen him listed at 5'8", I've seen him listed at 5'6". We'll call him 5'7". We'll, we'll, we'll split it in the middle here. That'll do, because he ran a 93% zone contact rate if you combine the Arizona Fall League and the regular season. Again, most of the time, it's just some additional reps to an already 100-game sample size where I already felt like I had enough of a sample to work with in the regular season. 69 games is a pretty small sample, especially when you split it between high A and double A. So to be able to build on that now with 23 more games and get that sample closer to 100 ball games where I can start to feel pretty comfortable with the data that we're looking at, you feel really good there. To run that 93% zone contact rate, to continue to cut the chase rate down more and more as the season went on and then into the Arizona Fall League, and then to flash the exit velocities that he did was really impressive as well. There's some sneaky poolside juice. There's very obviously a plus or plus plus feel to hit here. I mean, a swinging strike rate of just 5% on the season that he continued to build on in the AFL. He had four home runs in the regular season, hit three in these 23 AFL games. I'm really intrigued by Durbin. Still just 23 years old. I thought the defense looked pretty solid at second base. This is a player that should be able to climb quickly and turn into either a trade ship for the Yankees or a solid bench piece that you know is going to put a lot of bat on ball and just continuously grind out at bats and, and be a good depth piece for you. So Durbin, someone that I wasn't really paying much attention to, you know, had been monitoring with the solid season that he had. But to build on what he did, the way he did in the AFL, 
Definitely somebody who has seen his stock rise. Last hitter I wanted to mention, and of course, there are several other hitters that I'm sure you could categorize as up arrows based on their AFL performance, but for time purposes and also for the fact that we are going to be grinding out some Rule 5 draft stuff in the coming days. Don't don't worry about that. We'll be diving into that, and we'll also be discussing the Rocky system, as I mentioned, and just continuing to discuss the players who did get added to the 40-man. We're, we're working a little bit from behind this week as... It's been a busy week of travel coming back from Kentucky, so I apologize with a little bit of the uh, condensed late week schedule here with the episodes, but we were out there for Walker Bueller's charity golf tournament supporting the Bueller Foundation and first responders. It was so awesome to be out there, and, and Walker does such a good job of supporting so many different good causes. I'm absolutely terrible at golf, but it was a ton of fun, and now we are catching up on all of the Rule 5 stuff, but keep an eye out for that on the Just Baseball uh, website, JustBaseball.com, and and of course uh, on the call-up as well, because we will continue to break all of that good stuff down as we play catch-up the rest of this week here. But back to the last hitter, and that's Benny Montgomery of the Colorado Rockies. I'll preface this with the fact that I am still skeptical of Montgomery and and his ability to hit upper-level pitching, but he played 19 games in the fall league and looked better than he looked in his 109 games in high A. Those 109 games in high A will, of course, trump his 19 games in the fall league, but it was encouraging to just see him perform at all, and he ended up performing very well, but perform at all in the AFL. He ran a 7.06 OPS in those 109 high A games. So when I looked at Benny Montgomery getting the opportunity in the AFL, I'm saying, oh, you know, some of these older pitchers out there, I think could really pick him apart. And he he did strike out plenty. I mean, strikeout rate right around 30%. But for him to be as productive as he was and still compile 26 hits, three homers and six extra base hits. And that was good to see. He hit 333, 436, 500. Very solid overall, uh, even in a small sample size. I'm, again, like I said, still very skeptical. He has minimized that hitch in his load, but there is still a pretty prominent hitch with his hands as he tries to get into his slot. And I just think it's so disruptive to his timing. The minimizing of it has helped him survive, and he survived a little bit more in this 19-game stretch, but the fact that he just didn't get blown up was encouraging for me, and I know that's a low bar, but that's kind of what I was expecting for a guy that was you know, fighting for league average numbers at the high A level. Remember, this was a first-round pick, number eight overall, in the 2021 draft. This is a 6'4", 200-pound guy that flies with massive raw power potential that just can't seem to you know, control all of the moving parts that he has in some of the longer levers to consistently make contact. So this was a step in the right direction. Again, kind of going back to the original conversation that we have in the opening of this podcast is what did the Rockies want to see when they sent Benny Montgomery to the AFL? Probably something close to this. Reasonably, they were probably not expecting him to just cut the K rate in half. And they probably knew he was going to swing and miss. But if he could swing and miss and be productive and be a little bit more selective at the plate, also walked 14 times, I thought that there was a lot of positive signs as the project that is Benny Montgomery continues to truck forward. I'm not giving up on him, not saying he's cooked, and that's why I think it's important that he had this little confidence boost going into 2024. He is still just 21 years old and a young 21 at that, right? He was was his age 20 season, really. Uh, This past year, he turned 21, I think, less than two months ago. But at that same point, 
He's going to need to do a lot more in terms of his pre-swing moves. I should say do a lot less, but make a lot of improvements for me to be really bought in on him being anything close to the guy that we once thought he could be and, and the guy that the Rockies would or were hoping he could be when they took him eighth overall in 2021. Nonetheless, small step in the right direction for Benny Montgomery. I have a handful of pitchers we're going to talk about varying from all different kinds of backgrounds and prospect intrigue. But before that, a quick break. All right, so on to the pitching side of things. A few different names, definitely varying levels of prospect intrigue like I discussed before the break, and that's what makes this part of it pretty fun. I'm actually going to start with a big name who I expected to succeed out there, so it's not his success that made him a stock up guy for me. It's the fact that he was actually able to handle a pretty sizable workload, and that's Ricky Tiedemann. Again, Ricky Tiedemann was awesome for the most part, and and that was to be expected. While he did have a little bit of ups and downs at times during his abbreviated season, he he really didn't get to throw uh, for the most part until August because he made, I think, four or five starts in April, May, and then went down with an injury and then returned from that injury in August. At the same time, I was kind of curious how much they'd stretch him out because prior to the injury and then after the injury – they were really managing his workload, and understandably so, with the recurring arm ailments that Tiedemann has had. The Blue Jays have been very, very careful with him. But upon returning from the injury in the early August days there, they kept his pitch count right around 50. Then he got it up to about 60 pitches. Then he eventually got up to 70 pitches once, and then the next outing, right back down to 60. Then one more to wrap up the season at 75. That was his triple-A debut against Norfolk, which he was really solid. My question was, are they going to have him going 75, 77, whatever it was, 70-plus pitches every fifth day out there in Arizona? And and how would he respond to that? And yes, they made him do that, or they had him do that, and he honestly responded really well. So we only saw, and important that they were going to manage how much he threw in total, right? How many outings we saw, but they wanted to see him stretch down a bit more because the goal was to keep him as a starter. So we saw four appearances from him in the AFL and all of which he threw, or three out of the four, he threw at least 70 pitches, which was really notable. First outing, he goes five innings, really strong, one run, 77 pitches there, fastball average 95. I was really intrigued to see how he would come back from that Five days later, it was six days. So he got a little bit of an extra rest there and he came back 77 pitches the next time around, sat 95 with the fastball. Then five days later, we get another opportunity to see him throw. And this was the one start that the leash was a a bit shorter in terms of workload. He only throws 50 pitches, but the fastball sits 96 miles per hour, which I mean, that's really encouraging to see. Because really, that's where he was sitting through the first three innings. And then in innings four and five, you'd see the velocity drop ever so slightly, but for the most part, was holding it well enough. You'd see him make that pitch that looked a little bit tired, lock back in, and make a good one. Then he wraps up his AFL appearance, or his AFL stint, with the most pitches we've seen him throw in in over a year, which was 79 in the final start against Salt River, where he goes five innings of one run ball yet again. Fastball averages 94 miles an hour. So slightly down from what we saw from the other outings where he was throwing about 70 
to 75, 77 pitches. But to see him anywhere in the 94 to 96 range averaging in that velocity department is really encouraging. And also seeing him continue to, to fill up the strike zone a little bit better. All I wanted to see out of Ricky Tiedemann was 70-plus pitch outings and see him do it again five or six days later. For him to do that several times in the AFL, that's extremely encouraging, especially when that's coming right off of the heels of one of his longer stretches of just pitching consistently that we had seen because the last couple years had continuously been disrupted by injuries. And then when he'd come back, it'd be mostly two, three-inning spurts, mostly 30, 40 uh, pitch spurts in, in each outing. So that was what I was really excited to see, to wind the season down with a little bit more of a workload, finish that regular season with that 75-pitch performance in AAA for that debut, and then follow that up with 77, 70, 50 pitches, and then 79 again. That's not something we've seen much from with Tiedemann. And for him to continuously keep runs off the board in each of those outings, that's, of course, great to see as well. But I was just very happy to see Tiedemann stretched out, have those three, four, five up-downs, in one outing and still be able to throw enough strikes and maintain something close to what his velocity averages are and not have any knock on wood injuries because that was the concern. So stock up for Ricky Tiedemann because he was able to be stretched out and he performed while remaining healthy. Next up is a guy that we highlighted a little bit in the previous AFL episodes, but you got to talk about him as a stock up prospect based on what he was able to do in the AFL. And that's Texas Rangers arm Emiliano Teodo, who, I mean, he throws absolute fuel. We knew that. He's going to be a high leverage arm at the highest level. But the questions were a little bit around command and also the fastball shape because he was struggling to get swings and misses to the same degree with the heater that you would expect of a guy that sits about 99 to 102 miles per hour. He doesn't sit 102. He touches 102. Sits more in the 99 to 100 mile per hour range. But in this AFL stint for him, he was lights out. The only run he gave up came in the championship game. So that doesn't count towards, or one of the playoff games. So that doesn't count towards his AFL numbers that you'll see on baseball reference, which will give you a zero ERA. He went 11 innings in that AFL season, struck out 19, walked just three, and zero earned runs, a whip of 0.54. This is a far cry from what we saw from him in high A, which was in 61 and two-thirds innings, a 4-5-2 ERA. He punched out at E4. He walked 33. He gave up 10 home runs. Not one home run given up in the AFL. I know it's not a big sample size, but when you give up 10 home runs in 61 innings, it's notable to give up zero in 11, and again, only those three hits. 19 strikeouts. I saw him utilizing the fastball a lot better, too. He had a bit of a dead zone fastball during the regular season. So I wanted to see if maybe they'd have him throw more of that sinking type heater. Is he going to get the same amount of swing and miss as some of the other 100 mile an hour fastballs? Maybe not, but he's still getting more swing and miss on that sinker than he was on the four seamer because it's just simply not dead zone. Even though sinkers or two seamers traditionally do not get more whiff at the top of the zone, Teodo just needed a fastball that he could get more in zone with, with period. And just having that kind of late dart action, it's a bowling ball type of fastball now that he has, has caused a lot of hitters to swing over it at the bottom of the zone. And still even at the top, try almost to get too high on top of it and end up swinging over it as well. I saw him get so much chase on fastballs that looked like they were going to start at the knees and just darted right below the zone. 
And then also, you get guys looking down, even with a fastball that doesn't have that high IVB or the carry that you want, guys are looking down for a bowling ball type fastball, and you buzz it up, you're either going to freeze them, or you're going to get them to just swing out of the zone. So he got more in zone whiff on this heavier fastball than he did with the four-seamer during the regular season. And he filled up the zone more with it because he had more confidence. I think there was some times where he just didn't have confidence in the four-seam because he felt like he could get hit out of the yard, as we saw with the 10 homers. Now, with this two-seamer, even if he misses his spot, he's still going to feel confident that nobody's going to be able to square it up. And nobody really did square it up. The other side of it is he had a lot more confidence in his breaking ball. And that play, that pitch played really well for him. And he got a lot of swing and miss on that throughout his time in the AFL. So improved feel for the breaking ball, really using a better version of his fastball, realizing, hey, I'm not going to be able to get the, the crazy carry and big four-seam whiff at the top. I'm going to just naturally lean into what my fastball does and throw it that way and just rest on the fact that I throw 100 to 102. And that's exactly what Tioto did. And he dominated a lot of hitters in the AFL. So kind of finding what works best for him as somebody that's a little bit of a higher release point guy, it's that sinking action rather than trying to be a high carry guy from a higher release point and not really get that carry. Tioto's leaning into what works best for him with his release and his delivery and the natural movement that he creates. And that seemed to be very successful for him in the AFL. Next up is CJ Van Eyck of the Toronto Blue Jays. Someone we'll be talking more about in our Rule 5 draft preview because he was surprisingly left unprotected and could end up getting snagged here in the Rule 5 draft as that creeps up. Van Eyck was was hurt for a a lot of the year, did not really make his return to AA until late August, and it was a bit of an up-and-down return. It takes time to get your feet under you after an injury and, and build those innings and that workload back up. But what was fascinating about his stint in the AFL is he flashed some really solid starts. There was one start where he was five innings of, of scoreless ball, but also he showed this ability to come out of the pen too. And this is why I'm a bit more fascinated by Van Eyck. And I think he may have really made himself a Rule 5 draft candidate here, similar to a way that Mason Englert did with the Tigers. This is a stock-up guy for me because he made his last few appearances out of the bullpen, and the stuff really ticked up. Uh, He was sitting 96 in one appearance with the fastball and the breaking ball just looking even sharper from there and really just started striking guys out like crazy in those shorter stints. And that doesn't mean that he can't become a starter, but if I'm selecting a guy in the Rule 5 draft... And think about it from a stock perspective here. The Blue Jays felt that C.J. Van Eyck may not be worth the 40-man spot, but C.J. Van Eyck may have been able to endear himself by what he did then coming, kind of coming out of the bullpen to another team enough that they may select him here in the Rule 5 because if I don't think he's ready to be a starter, I can stash him in the bullpen and have him go one inning in the sixth inning, right, and, and, and have him be more of that low-leverage option. And if he continues to impress... You put him into higher leverage, and as he continues to develop, you could put him back into the starting rotation. What tends to be tough with guys is the the players in the Rule 5, the arms in the Rule 5, that you don't know how they're going to adjust to a bullpen role. You don't know how they're going to perform in that role. You don't want to select those guys because you can't stash them anywhere if they don't stick as a starter. There's nothing to do with them other than return them to the team that you selected them from in the Rule 5. CJ Van Eyck showed enough flashes in this Arizona Fall League to say, hey, he's intriguing as a starting pitching prospect. But I think more importantly was nails out of the bullpen with a fastball that was 
up to 97, really sitting 95, 96, and a hammer of a curveball that looked more like a power curve instead of the low 80s, you know, more 81, 82. It was more like 83, 84 in those shorter stints and just was sharp. So you have those two pitches, fastball really playing up. I think a team could be interested in the Rule 5 now. So it's, again, it's not the bit most exciting stock up type of, of situation here, but I think he may have endeared himself to some teams in the Rule 5 with the way he was able to come out of the pen, be a little bit of a Swiss Army knife, seeing the stuff tick up, being healthy, and also still showing some flashes of what can be as potentially a late rotation starter. Van Eyck comes with some prospect pedigree as a former second round pick out of Florida State. And as someone that had really not thrown much at all as a pro going into this year, this could be worth a flyer with the pedigree. And yes, the injury history may end up making him even more likely of a reliever. If that's the case, then you just got a taste of what could be out of the pen. And if he continues to to build up, his stuff could tick up again. He has only thrown a total of 114 innings since being drafted in 2020. Most of those came in 2021 when he was injured. He threw 80 innings then. But since that time, right? So 2022, he doesn't throw, underwent Tommy John surgery, comes back from TJ in 2023 and halfway through. And this was kind of trying to make up for lost time. We only saw 34 innings from him this year. So I think it was really impressive that he was able to go to the AFL, put up the numbers that he put up. But beyond that, just seeing the stuff as good as it was, this was a dude that before he returned to action midway or in the back end of the season had gone nearly 800 days between his last appearance. So what we saw in the AFL was a guy that was still working back. I think a team could have seen enough there to say, hey, he could still be on this upward trajectory of getting back to that day one guy that the Blue Jays saw just a few years ago. Last but not least, actually, no, we got two more, excuse me, but this is probably my favorite story of all the players that we're going to discuss. And and I hope that I get all of the details of this nailed down correctly. Zach Penrod was a name I had no idea of going into the AFL because, well, not that long ago, within the last calendar year, he was throwing in the Pioneer League. So this is somebody that not only showed out in the Pioneer League, but then showed some good flashes in high A Greenville when the Boston Red Sox decided to sign him and then continue to build on that in the AFL. I have no idea if Zach Penrod's going to be a big league arm, but if you're an undrafted free agent, which he was and signed as one back in 2018 after pitching in an NAIA school, I believe Corbin is the name of the NAIA school. Then he went to Northwest Nazarene. (laughs) If I got this all right, undrafted free agent, Signed by the Rangers, I think undergoes Tommy John, gets released, and has been pitching an indie ball over the last couple years, kind of with some mediocre results. Then, really impresses in this past season, 298 ERA in 54 innings in indie ball as a 26-year-old, gets picked up by the Red Sox. He pitches to about a 2-1 ERA in 20 innings in high A, and the Red Sox saw enough where they said, hey... Let's send this guy to the Arizona Fall League and see how he does. Well, he did pretty well. So again, stock is very relative here. And it went from stock of zero to a guy that was worth sending to the AFL and then a guy that validated the Red Sox's decision to send him to the AFL. If you're wondering what really clicked for him, changeup. He found a changeup and it's darn good. He's a lefty at 6'2". Fastball sits 93, 94 miles an hour, but his changeup was a problem. 
It was a problem for hitters. During the regular season and the AFL combined, opponents hit just 150 against it, and he throws it plenty, 20% usage on that changeup. The other side of it is that the fastball gets in on hitters a little bit quicker than they think and has some you know, pretty good shape to it. 215 opponent batting average on the on the fastball. Then he mixed in a slider that was really tough left on left and looked like a more than viable third offering, continue to fill up the zone with that. He looked better and better as the year went on, and by the time he got to the AFL, his secondaries were consistent enough to where you start to think, hey, maybe this guy can be a swingman. Maybe he can start some ball games for us. And, and that's what he did out there. He, he made four starts. And in each of those four starts, looked really solid. We saw four innings of one run ball. And then we saw four innings of scoreless ball. And then we saw three innings of one run ball, three innings of scoreless ball. And then he pitched one inning out of the bullpen in the fall stars game. I mean, this guy was a fall star and out of the bullpen, by the way, sat 96 with the fastball as a starter in those three, four inning spurts was sitting closer to 93, 94. But you have a guy that could be a lefty reliever that can sit 96 with a nasty changeup and a slider. So you get two different secondary pitches that he can go to, uh, whether it's a lefty or a righty. So he's not going to be a lefty specialist if you use him as a reliever, but also he's someone that's clearly capable of being stretched out a little bit and could go multi-inning in relief, could be a mop-up duty guy. I, I just think it's a great find. It's a lot of fun. The fact that he was just pitching an indie ball and not long after is a fall star. And I'm sure when the, the Red Sox sent Penrod out there, there was probably some Red Sox fans that said, I didn't even know we had that guy in our system. And now he's somebody that not only proved the Red Sox right to send him out there, looks like he could be somebody that's going to start the year in double A and uh, get some looks by the end of the season as a potential bullpen piece if he can keep building off of this. Through the AFL, he was landing those two secondaries for a strike around 65% of the time and upping the fastball strike rate a little bit from some of the early season numbers. I don't know what Zach Penrod's going to be, but he is somebody that is definitely capable of missing bats at the upper levels, and that's a far cry from where he was just less than a year ago, which was somebody that teams didn't think was worth an affiliation spot. Not not a roster spot, a a spot on any of their affiliates. So congratulations to Zach Penrod. You know I'll be watching because I love stories like this. Part of the reason why I love the minor leagues and I hope you all are rooting for Zach Penrod to hopefully get his big league debut. It's not out of the question to potentially get a big league debut next year, especially with the state of the Red Sox pitching. And you know he had to impress some people out there up close and personal who went out to see him in the Red Sox organization. Last but not least is a right-hander from the Oakland A's org. It's Jack Perkins, fifth-round pick in 2022 out of IU Bloomington, but someone that I think I'm interested to see how they decide to use him, but to me stood out as instead of a depth arm that I was wondering how the command was, if the stuff was even good enough to really work in a bullpen. We saw him in in the regular season between high A and double A, 107 and two-thirds innings, 93 strikeouts, 47 walks. He didn't really scream with a 4 ERA, by the way. Didn't really scream, oh, let's try this guy in the bullpen, even though the command was was not great. It wasn't terrible. But when you're striking out less than 8 per 9, like, is he really going to also succeed in the bullpen? What is what is this guy? I, be, I guess it's basically the question. And while I don't think he's going to be as high leverage as some of the other names that we, we mentioned here, he made the move to the bullpen in the AFL, and the stuff just looks so much better. I'm not just saying that because he had a zero ERA in 12 and a thirds innings with 15 strikeouts, but 
the fastball just had a little bit more life to it. Then the slider working off of that just had a little bit more bite to it. And all of a sudden, you say, oh, that fastball, that slider, and then a cutter that he, he mixes in off of that, which is really hard to differentiate from the slider. Everything's hard, hard, and harder. I think that really plays well out of the pen. When you have a starter that's trying to find a changeup and his three pitches are a fastball, a slider, and a cutter, fastball at 95, uh, which 95 out of the pen, I should say it was more 93, 94, slider in the mid 80s, maybe a tick below that, and then a cutter in the low 90s, it's just not really an arsenal that's conducive to, to consistently turning over lineups. But out of the pen, it's funky and annoying and just, just uncomfortable for hitters. It, they don't really know where it's coming from. It's a relatively low release point. And with the fastball jumping a little bit, it's not great, but it's, it's a good enough heater. And then the, the hard cutter and then the slider off of that with just even more sweep. He started to pick up way more chase on that slider than he was during the regular season. He started to get more whiffs on the fastball because it was a tick up. And then that cutter became a really good weapon as a weak contact inducer and something that can tie up lefties. The shape on the cutter was not... I, would, I wouldn't say it was insanely great, but when it's now more at 93-94 instead of 90-91, it really just plays up as well. So his entire arsenal played up. It was really uncomfortable for hitters from both sides of the plate compared to how comfortable they looked for him, with him as a starter. And I think that you could be a solid 6th, 7th inning piece here for the Oakland A's. I know that's not the most exciting thing in the world, but he went from, I think, org starter for me to a guy that I think should be a decent reliever for the big league club at some point within the next year or so. Uh, he should turn 24 years old I think pretty soon. Uh, so it may be a little bit of a faster track now that if he makes the move to the bullpen. I don't know if they're going to keep him there, but I think with what he showed in the AFL, I actually like his stock better as a potential bullpen arm. And I think the move to the pen increases his value because I was starting to really wonder if there ever was a path to the big leagues as a starter. There's definitely a path to the big leagues as a reliever with this unique arsenal. So the A's may have a big league arm here in Perkins. That'll do it for this episode. Again, sorry for the later start to the week for us at the call-up, but appreciate you bearing with us. We will be making up for lost time with that Rule 5 draft preview, uh, some of the top prospects that were left unprotected, and then a Rockies farm system breakdown that I'm very excited about because there's some names I really like in that system. As always, thank you for listening. If you could leave a rating, a written review, that would be awesome. Really appreciate it. And we look forward to talking prospects with you tomorrow.